Turning in our Bibles uh, today then to our studies in 1 Thessalonians and at chapter 5, thinking together at verses 12 to 15 of this chapter, thinking of our social obligations. The sum of the duty of all mankind, as we know, is to love God and to love our neighbor. That is a summary of the Ten Commandments which our Lord has given to us. The first table of the law commands one to four, describe our love for God. No other gods, no graven images, respecting his name, keeping the Sabbath. And our duty to our neighbor is in the second table of the law, honor our parents, no murder, no stealing, no adultery, no false witness, and no coveting. Both duties to God and to man are crucial, but the order in the commands is important. Our duty to God comes first. And then our duty to one another. Just as in our car mirrors, all of them are important. All of them are essential. Our side mirrors and our front mirror above our head must be checked by us regularly. But in order of importance, I think you'd agree, the front mirror edges it. So love for God precedes and is foundational to love for one another. And this is where our society is going wrong at this time. We've forgotten our duty to God while trying to maintain our duty to one another. A right relationship to God, however, gives us the motivation and the strength to live properly with our neighbor. Put God in his rightful place. And like the correct long word in a crossword puzzle, everything else will be slotted into its proper place. But it is our duty to our neighbor that is emphasized here in verses 12 to 15. The Thessalonians already have a right relationship with God. They love him. Now their duty, manward, is considered. And if you're here today and not yet a Christian, this is the fundamental point that you're to consider, that you need to repent of your sins and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, and so you will be made right with God. And then you love your neighbor as yourself. The people reading this letter of 1 Thessalonians, they had repented and believed in Jesus. And now the apostle addresses their relationship to their neighbor. And he identifies, as I've already said, three social relations that we have to others. The church leaders, the church members, and to everyone else. And in this third study of the issues in the congregation at Thessalonica, we come to this brief summary of our duty towards others. Firstly, respect church leaders. Verses 12 and 13. Read those verses with me again, please. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. You may be asking, 
why elders are mentioned in this section. Why is there this command to esteem them and respect them? Was there a problem in this young congregation? No specific problem is identified in this letter, but it is natural for the apostle to mention elders here for two reasons. One is because they were newly installed. It's only a few months since Paul left the congregation of Thessalonica in a hurry. The newly installed elders were Christians for less than a year. Thus the apostle seeks to stave off any disrespect for them due to their being newly installed and new converts in the faith. Secondly, the command to respect elders is included because there is inevitable tension between elders and congregation as there will always be between leaders and those who are led. Elders and leaders don't always get decisions right. Some members may have been jealous of the new elders because they were not appointed. And though the due process of election would have been followed in the congregation, tensions could emerge. And so the apostle includes this part in his address. The Christian's relation to elders is identified. How are the elders described here? There's a general description of the work of an elder and then a detailed description of their work. The general description of elders is that they labor among you. The word labor is a word meaning to toil till weary. Paul uses this word in other places in his writings to describe his own trade in shaping leather, in tent making. As he steeped the leather, plunged the leather, stretched the leather, shaped the leather, he toiled till he was weary. So he says, elders, toil among you. Until they are weary. But what is involved in that toil? What is involved in the labor of elders in local congregations? The first is rule. He says in verse number 12 to respect those who are over you in the Lord. This phrase over you has the idea of rule and authority, of leading and pastoring the local congregation, of overseeing the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, of welcoming people into membership, of issuing disjunction certificates and where necessary excommunicating members. This is how the elders are over you. They rule in the local congregation. First Timothy 5.17 uses this same word to describe elders and links it in chapter 3 verse 5 to the elder ruling in his house. If he rules well in his house, he will rule well in the congregation. The second area in which the elder toils or labors is in admonishing. He uses this word 
in, in verse number 12, who are over you in the Lord and admonish you. This term denotes a word of admonition which is designed to correct while not provoking or embittering. The elder is to be firm but fair, full of truth and grace as Jesus is. Mercy and justice meet together in the good elder. Truth and peace embrace in the good ruling elder as Psalm 85 verse 10 says. One role of the elder then is to correct erring doctrine or erring practice to admonish you. So if a member comes out with strange doctrine at a midweek meeting, the duty of the elder is to correct her. If a young person is behaving badly, the duty of the elder is to admonish him. A young person said to an elder who was admonishing her for her behavior, mind your own business. He replied, that's exactly what I am doing to rule over you, to admonish you. That is the work described here of the elder. So what is the duty of the church members toward elders who rule and admonish? The apostle is anticipating a wrong response to the work of an elder ruling and admonishing. Some members may be resentful of an elder admonishing them or their children, but that is part of their role. Two responses of the congregation are identified here. Verse 12, respect. This word literally means to know the worth of something so that it is valued. One translation is appreciate. Rather than being angered, jealous, or resentful of the role of elders, members are to respect their role as guardians of the faith and practice of the congregation. Verse 13 uses the word esteem. Esteem them very highly in love because of their work. This is a similar idea to respect and honor just mentioned, but includes the element of affection. Love the men for their work. There are two sides to this, aren't there? There is the command to respect and esteem elders given to church members, but what that respect and esteem is based on is the work of the elder, not the office of the elder. The respect of church members is earned by the elders who labor and toil in their work as they rule, admonish, lead, care, shepherd, serve the congregation with humility, love, and wisdom. The members notice this and respect them with affection. David showed respect for King Saul because Saul was chosen by God to rule. He showed esteem for his office, but not for his work. Elders are to earn the respect of the congregation by their work. And our elders do. Monthly session meetings, some of them very long. Regular attendance at presbytery and synod meetings. Trevor cut his holiday short yesterday to represent our congregation in Uri at the presbytery meeting. Occasional and yearly pastoral visitation, hospitality, prayer, a listening ear, 
The men are laboring, toiling in their role of ruling and admonishing. I say to those who are not yet members, whatever age you are, however young you are, that you should not consider church membership to be a threat to your freedoms, but to be a safety net for your Christian life. Christ in his wisdom has placed in his church the office of elder to care for the members of the congregation, to pray for them, to visit them, to look out for them. And if you are a Christian, becoming a member of the congregation is not something to be delayed, postponed, terrified about, put off, but something to be desired, embraced and pursued. You should have a hearty desire to have a spiritual mentor in your elder, a friend, a helper, a shepherd in your Christian life who will set you an example, come alongside you, pray specifically for you, be in touch with you if you move to university and when you start work, who will help you through your hard times and challenge you when you drift away. Additional to the care of your Christian parents and good Christian peers is the God-appointed rule of elders in our local congregation. And that is something that we all should want. I hope the parents of the congregation, and I'm sure you are, are assured of the love and concern that session has for the young people of this congregation Session has started giving a study Bible to each of our young people when they finish upper sixth year, convinced that as they give attention to the word of the Lord, he will keep them. Session is also exploring along with Diana, short course for school leavers as they transition from school to university or work to help them go on in the Christian life. Our duty towards leaders of our local church is to respect them, to esteem them for their work. Secondly, our duty towards fellow members in verse 14. Read along with me again verse 14 of chapter 5. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient, With them all. At first sight, you may think these verses describe the responsibility of the elders to the members, and I have heard them preached in that way. However, the better understanding of the text here is that this verse describes the duty of all members to each other. Jeannie Green writes This pastoral responsibility is not placed solely in the hands of the leadership, but delegated to all the members of the church. Although the leaders played an important role within the congregation, the task, he says, of maintaining the well-being of the Christian community did not fall to them exclusively. He goes on, The members of the church shared a mutual responsibility to help one another for their building up in the faith. Verse 14 applies to all of us, not just 
to the elders. And there's three ways in which church members express care for fellow members, identified in verse 14. First, admonish the idol. This is an initial reference, of course, to the group that we've already mentioned in our studies who stopped working because they thought Jesus was coming immediately. The Atakoi were sponging of their fellow Christians and neglecting their home and work responsibilities. Such behavior is not to be admired by church members, but rather rebuked, admonish the idol. The church is to help the genuinely poor, not those who are poor through their own idleness. The word idol here was also used of athletes who didn't play by the rules in the gym at Berea and of soldiers who would march out of step. So the reference is also a general command to admonish Christians not living as Christians should live. Thus, it is not just elders that we've noticed in verse number 12 and 13 who are to admonish the wayward, but it is also the responsibility of every member. Don't be afraid to say to a fellow member in love, as we talked about on Wednesday evening, you shouldn't be doing that. A church member did that to me years ago. I read one of James Patterson's books entitled The Jester. It's a cracking read about the search for the spear that wounded the side of Jesus. And I used an illustration from the book in a sermon mentioning the raucous tale it is. And afterwards, a church member, not an elder, a church member warned me about the bad language and explicit scenes in his other books. And I never read another one of his books. Admonish those who are out of step. Admonish those who are not playing by the rules. Admonish the idol. A second responsibility is to encourage the weak. Literally encourage the little of soul. The phrase describes a person who's shrunk, broken, shattered, reduced by life's hardships. She's not the person she once was. She is shy, retired, aloof, sad, quiet, stooped, weak, little of soul. The dark providences determined by the Savior have deeply affected her. A bereavement, a bankruptcy, a broken relationship, an unemployment, a false accusation, an illness has shriveled her, reduced her, compressed her, shrunk her, parched her, wilted her soul. An unexpected hardship has broken into her life with devastating effect. And we have witnessed this. And Job speaks about it in his great book that what he feared has come upon him. And such people, by the members of the local church, are to be soothed and listened to and talked to and walked with and sobbed with and comforted 
and encouraged. We're to encourage the little of soul. And thirdly, to help the weak. Weak is used sometimes of those who are weak in body, Luke 10, 9. Weak also is used of those who are weak in faith, Romans 15, 1. Weak is also used of those who are weak in social standing, 1 Corinthians 1. 1 Thessalonians 4, the weak is those who are morally weak. So we are to help the weak, to hold them up when they're ready to fall down. In a marching army, the weak are often left on the sidelines. In a school class, the weak can be ignored. In a town like ours, the weak can be exploited. But in the church, the weak are to be helped. We're not to forsake them in their difficult moment. The man who in a moment of weakness commits adultery, we're to help him repent. Rebuild his marriage. The woman who makes foolish decisions because of her spiritual weakness. The widow who had been exploited by insurance companies because of mental or social weakness. Or to help the weak. The young person succumbing to peer pressure to dabble in drugs. We must help him. Some of us are better at doing this than others, aren't we? Elders are to be foremost in these actions and we're delighted to have Diane to help us to fulfill our goals in relation to these commands. But all of us have a responsibility to each other. And one reason for the coffee before and after church is to facilitate this ministry. And we will make mistakes in helping others. We will get things wrong sometimes. Even when we do things right, our ministry will not always be well received by others. I emailed Warren last week to tell him I was praying for him. Never heard from him. I'll give him a hard time about that tomorrow, but anyway. But we're encouraged in the verse 14 to be patient with all. Don't give up. Because of your mistakes or pushbacks from other church members, as you've tried to help, as you've tried to encourage. Responsibility to elders, responsibility to one another. Lastly, a responsibility to everyone in verse 15. Read with me again, verse 15. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Our duty to everyone in verse 15 is put firstly in negative terms and then in positive terms. In negative terms, see that no one repays evil for evil to anyone. The reference here is to personal revenge for personal injury. Evil is sometimes done to us and we're not to respond with evil actions. The statement is striking because it gives us an insight into our hearts and our inability to control our anger. Evil is done to us and our natural response is to respond in an evil way. We're incapable of justly responding many times to a wrong action and we ourselves enter the realm of evil. We can respond to evil with love. 
with mercy, with kindness, with justice, but not with evil. We say two wrongs don't make a right. Their proper response when evil is done to us can be to forgive, rebuke, leave to God to avenge the wrong, but not engage in personal revenge. Romans 12, 19 states it, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay says the Lord. And positively, our responsibility to everyone is put out in this way. Always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Seek is a strong word here, which means to pursue, which means to be proactive, to strive after with great effort. We're not to be half-hearted in doing good to all. And one striking feature of this word is that it's used in chapter 2, verse 15 of the persecutors who drove out Paul and his team from Thessalonica. The memory of the enthusiasm of the persecutors of this church to do evil was raw in the minds of the congregation. The strength, the zeal, the passion, the ardor, the keenness, the fervor, the creativity with which they sought to persecute the Christians is to be matched by the Christians' enthusiasm to do good. They sought to do evil. You seek to do good. They were powerful in their seeking. You be powerful in your seeking to do good. Don't let the enthusiasm of unbelievers to do evil be greater than the enthusiasm of believers to do good. The apostle is saying here, in Cornwall, the council permitted balconies to be added to houses to allow residents sea views. One house owner added a balcony to his house from which he had a sea view, but also a view of his neighbor's garden. The neighbor was annoyed by this balcony and this reduction of his privacy and erected a 10-foot barrier in his garden to, to block out the sea view of his neighbor. But we are not to return evil, but to seek good everyone. John Piper on the Desiring God website asks, when is it right to repay evil with pain? In his discussion, he argues that in not returning evil for evil, we declare two things. One, that God is merciful. Our God is merciful to transgressors, ourselves especially, and does not return evil for evil, but forgives the repentant sinner. And secondly, we declare that God is just. By not avenging ourselves, we defer to the justice of God. We leave the wrong that's been done to us with God to either give repentance to the person who's wronged us or to punish the wrongdoer. Our social responsibility then. Respect, care, do good. Duty, duty, duty. Imperative, after imperative, 
But where is the grace, you say? Note the paragraph, verses 12 to 15, begins with the word and. The paragraph that we've thought of today is connected to what goes before in verse 9 to 11, speaking of the indicatives of the grace of God towards us in election, in the atoning death of Jesus for our sins, in salvation, and in the second coming of Jesus. What God has done in choosing us, in calling us, in changing us in his grace should compel us. Do you esteem the elders he has appointed in our congregation? To care for the members of his flock here and to do good to all in our community. We esteem others because God esteems us. We care for others because God cares for us. We do good to others because God in Christ has done immeasurable good to us.